You're listening to Young African Entrepreneur, episode 24. Welcome to Young African Entrepreneur, the leading resource for starting and growing a business for flourishing entrepreneurs in sub-Saharan Africa. Join in as we discuss tactical advice, personal motivators, and unexpected surprises for industry leaders and market professionals as they chart their own path to success. It's your time, your journey, your Africa. So please welcome your host, Victoria Crandall. Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of Young African Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Victoria Crandall. Today's guest is Namdi Oraye, the founder of Disrupting Africa, an open platform promoting Africa's innovators. You can connect with him at Namdi Oraye on LinkedIn and Namdi underscore Oraye on Twitter. Namdi is passionate about Africa's tech innovation. He is the author of Disrupting Africa and Taking on Silicon Valley. Namdi is also the former host of a weekly show featuring African innovators on radio station Power FM 98.7 in Johannesburg, South Africa. Itching to leave for the first world, he immigrated to Australia, but a bullish McKinsey report changed his perception on the opportunities in Sub-Saharan Africa. When he was asked to lead the Africa expansion of an Australian mobile money company, he jumped at the chance, moving to South Africa. This experience in Africa's fintech sector during the takeoff of mobile money dramatically shaped his perceptions on African innovators. He met many brilliant African innovators who struggled with getting visibility and when he joined Power FM 98.7 as a contributor, he spoke with many African founders and innovators, which marked the beginning of his life mission to promote African innovation abroad. We chatted about Namdi's early experiences in fintech, his fascination for all things digital payments, the one takeaway every African innovator should remember, hint it's about mindset, and three innovative African companies that he greatly admires. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Namdi Oraye. Namdi, welcome to Young African Entrepreneur. It's an absolute delight to have you on the show. Thank you, Victoria. It's, uh, it's a great honor to be on the show, and I appreciate you having me on. So Namdi, Tell us a bit about your background. Where did you grow up? So I'm Nigerian. Uh, I was born in the UK. I went to high school in Nigeria, um, did my uh, undergrad in um, a Bachelor of Engineering and Electronics and Engineering in uh, the University of Botswana. So I was in Botswana for about 10 years. I then migrated to Australia, Melbourne, Australia, in 2004, I did my master's there in telecommunications, and I've been in South Africa for the past five years, since two, uh, six years now, since 2012. Um, my background's always been in the engineering space, and I have a massive, massive passion for Africa and driving Africa's growth using technology. I find that very intriguing that a Nigerian goes to Botswana. What was the backstory there? 
They were just family moving. My dad got a job as, as a quantity surveyor in, in Botswana, and we just migrated with him. And I must admit, in hindsight, it's probably one of the best things that happened to me because I got to experience, that was my first interaction of with a um, another African country and that exposure for me has been invaluable to, to, ex, to experience different cultures uh, which is starkly different to, to Nigeria and that exposure has been very very instrumental for me. What sparked your fascination in African innovation? How did it all begin? Uh, that's a good, a good point. It's one I've asked myself numerous times because I, I went back looking for that sort of defining moment and um, it came about, I remember figuring out it was in 2010 when I read the McKinsey Lines and the Move report. I was in Australia at the time working in a, in a corporate and I read that report and I was totally blown away. I mean, the report was the first one I read on Africa that actually showed the positives, what's capable on the continent, uh, outlining the industries that we can participate in to disrupt Africa. And two years later, I, I literally packed up my bags and, and moved to South Africa. And that moment for me was the first time I said to myself, I have a, uh, in Africa and I had uh, value to contribute to the, to the continent. I'm fascinated to know. So you, you read this McKinsey report. It really got you thinking about, about innovation, about what was going on in, in Africa. And then it took you two years to come back. So what was happening in those two years? I think it was just the internal struggle. You know, in my, my first book, which we, I'm sure we'll talk about later, you know, when I was growing up, I never really thought of myself as a patriotic Nigerian or patriotic African at that stage. My viewers, you know, got to move out of, of Botswana or Africa, go to a first world country, settle in and, and you know, live the Australian dream, if you do, if you you do want to call it that. So I never really thought of of myself as having a role to play on the continent, and and I think that report for me was the first time where I had an inclination that I could actually contribute. And I guess it it took me almost two years to get over that hurdle of actually you know coming back to the continent to to contribute. And so the move to South Africa, how did that happen? Uh, it was part personal, part uh, work-related. Uh, personal in, in the sense that I, I was I chose to be closer to my parents who still live in Botswana, flying over from from Melbourne, Australia to to Botswana is sometimes a bit of a mission. I uh, imagine it sort of takes to yeah, twenty four to thirty six hours just to get home. Uh, whereas Botswana is just around the corner, it's literally a four hour drive from Johannesburg. So that, that's part personal, and and also to a certain degree. Um, South Africa for me was a bit of a soft landing. Like I'd, li I'd lived in, like say in Botswana, I understood the South African South, South African market. I had quite a number of contacts in South Africa, and it sort of made sense from a, a soft landing point of view. And if I looked at it from a, an African perspective, I think you know, flying in, into other African countries from South Africa was an easier easier conversation to have. And what was the professional opportunity that took you to South Africa? So I actually did get um, a, an offer to expand an Australian-based business. Um, in fact, at, at that moment in 2012, all the, the stars aligned in terms of both personal and, and professional. So I got the offer to expand that business, which led into a more permanent 
permanent base whilst I was trying to figure out my contribution into Africa and then to where I'm at now in, in terms of how do I contribute actively to, to the African continent. And what was the business? Uh, so it was a telecommunications business that was based out of Australia, but this was in the heydays of mobile money when mobile money was becoming, I guess, the flavor of the month at that stage. And um, it was a mobile-based business, mobile money-based business out of Australia. I'd sort of been in a few Australasian countries, and they were looking to break into the African market. I thought the perfect opportunity, mobile money being one of those key products for us. You know, if you think of Mpesa, about ten years ago, launching in Kenya. And the need to drive that financial inclusion. So for me, it almost it seemed like the, the gods were answering and listening to the, the call of my heart with this mobile money opportunity. And, and part of that was to set up shop in South Africa and provide that service across the African continent. And what were your key takeaways from that experience? It was, it was quite simple. There's a huge, huge opportunity. And the opportunity doesn't necessarily lie in the tech. The tech becomes the enabler. The, the real opportunity is actually touching people's lives and, and ask very hard questions of myself. And even when I present at, at conference, I ask very hard questions is how do we tangibly move people from X to Y? And, and if you look at, let's use South Africa as an, as an example, unemployment rate sitting at sort of 26% plus. And the question is, how do we help solve that problem using technology so the key takeaway for me during that role was was to to always look at technology as an, an enabler not the end solution and you always only measure technology on the basis of it actually improving lives not necessarily number of clicks not necessarily number of of signups but have you tangibly changed someone's life and changing someone's life in in in, in real terms is have I provided, say, financial services that enables them to pay a school fee, the child's school fees, or buy a product, or, buy, or go to the market, or even something that's given dignity? Are you able to put uh, a bank card in someone's hand to show them that you recognize them and provide dignity in that form? And can you recount to us a story from that time when you were leading the kind of sub sub-Saharan African expansion of this mobile money company that really illustrated the challenges of working in these markets? I could give you a personal example. Uh, I moved to South Africa with a, with a job, a permit. I moved over um, highly educated with two degrees and ability to execute Touching down, it was really, really difficult for me to open up a bank account. Time to get paid for, you know, with your salary. And, you know, the question is, have you, in order to open a bank account, have you got, say, KYC documentation, which is, you know, three months bank statement or proof of address? And I said, oh, to get proof of address, I, got, I tried to rent a place and I'm told you need to show us uh, a three months bank statement. So I'm in this, in this cycle where I'm stuck personally myself. And I'm trying to solve this uh, uh, issue of financial inclusion. Uh, so that for me was a personal example. And I asked myself a hard question. So what about a foreign national, you know, who's migrated to South Africa? It could be any foreign national moving from, say, Gambia to Nigeria or Kenya to Ethiopia. And they don't necessarily have all the documentation or they don't have the qualifications they've got. So what happens to them? They're actually quite stuck, you know. And that for me was a real personal experience. And, and in fact, one of my key projects, uh, sort of termed a legacy project, is how do we solve 
for the foreign nationals? How do we solve for the African diaspora, who, in my opinion, uh, are the forgotten generation to a certain degree? Because once once you're out of Africa, we sort of forget about you till you come back and you almost have to start from scratch. And how do we solve for that? How do we provide financial services? Um, and in, in that instance, mobile money was just one of those tools. And that's a personal experience that I still carry with me up to, to this day um, in trying to resolve and solve for. Hmm. No, I mean, it's, uh, I think for all of us who live and work in sub-Saharan Africa, dealing with traditional banks is always a headache. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's a, it's a huge challenge. And, you know, we have, we have the opportunity, to, opportunity through, through technology. So the technology exists today. We have the opportunity. We have large multinationals in the banking space who can provide the service. And the, and the question is, why aren't we moving fast enough to, to solve these problems? Reading your book, Disrupting Africa, it's very clear that whereas you're in, interested in all innovation, you're particularly fascinated by digital financial services, which yes. you know undergird all industries. Because obviously, you can't set up an e-commerce business if you can't control the payments. Absolutely. And so, would you say your interest really began because you were on the ground working with this company? Correct. Yes, and and in fact, that was the defining moment or point of clarity for me as why I, I came back to the continent. And in fact, when I started writing the book, it was really meant to be around mobile money. That was the, the premise of the book and say, this is how mobile money could change lives. And the more I traveled to, to countries, the more I spoke at conferences, because at that stage also I had some, some expertise and I spoke at conferences about what we can do with, with mobile money. The more I met entrepreneurs, the more I met innovators. And I realized this conversation is far bigger than just mobile money or digital payments, if you want to call it that. And digital payments is really the underlying uh, service that we need to provide. So if an innovator is looking to transact or purchase a product or, or even a consumer is looking to, to transact, I mean, if you haven't got the basic of being able to send money, you know, pay for products, you're not in the game. So mobile money or digital payments, if you want to call it that, is just an enabler for a bigger ecosystem. And it started looking at this ecosystem across multiple in, multiple industries, from the education space to arts and culture to transportation. And you can see the same themes popping up. And the biggest theme that actually popped up was that we don't talk about our innovators enough. And to a certain degree, they actually don't exist because we don't talk about them. And in my travels, doing the mobile money play and meeting with innovators, I'm like, wow, that's just so impressive. How have you um, achieved this? And I, I had this burning desire. It's like, that's, we need to talk about you. And that was actually the premise for the book. You know, it took me probably another two years to write, two or three years to write the book. But in between that, interestingly enough, because of, of the exposure I had on, on over the past few years and, and the passion I had about African innovation, I got a slot on a radio station in South Africa called Power FM. And, and every Thursday, I'd, I'd come in and I'd feature an innovator. I believed was doing very impressive stuff and give them some airtime. 
And I, I was very deliberate about the type of innovators I featured for a particular reason. I only featured innovators sort of three plus years old in, in the market, playing in multiple markets. And the premise there as to why I put that criteria, at least for majority of the innovators I featured on the radio show, was to show that we actually have tangible innovators doing impressive stuff. And that sort of led into the book, which I can expand on in a bit. I'm interested to know when you say innovators, do you mean a founder of a startup? Do you mean someone who started a viable business? Because there is a big difference between someone who is an innovator who can develop a new product or service and whether they succeed in creating a business. Yes, yes. And you absolutely, it's, it's definitely the former. And I clearly have a bias towards technology innovators um, just because uh, that's the, the background I, um, I'm in. And I just love technology as a tool. So innovators could really range from having an innovative idea through to technology, which is actually becoming synonymous with innovation these days. So I personally specifically focus on innovators who've, who've got an idea and have executed on that idea and in the entrepreneurship space. Okay, but maybe, but who haven't necessarily kind of grown and scaled that business? Yeah, so so if I was to use throw some numbers in there, I would I would say, for example, an idea or sorry, an innovator who's successful in say a particular market and has has sort of hit that hundred and fifty thousand customer base and probably expanding in, into multiple markets. That for me is the sort of where I would define the innovators that I see as as credible. Um, because before that, you're still sort of in the idea phase and it's it's hard to focus and promote that, you know, because anyone could critique it and say, oh, that's still an idea. But now I'm moving to the phase like, no, so we've gone past idea. We've successfully tested this product. We being the, from an African perspective. And he has an innovator doing impressive stuff with a scalable product. And that for me is, is the sort of the loose definition I had when featuring innovators on my, on my show and in, in the book as well. Mm. And we're definitely going to talk more about your conversations with African entrepreneurs because I'd love to hear your thoughts about kind of like what analysis you've developed or kind of what you've learned yes. from those conversations. But before we do that, I'd love to get back to, you know, digital payments and since you wrote the book a couple years ago, of course, innovation moves at such a fast pace, and there have been so many changes in fintech in Africa. And yeah. I'd love to know beyond mobile money, what are the trends in fintech that really excite you? So payments in general excites me, and, and you're right. It's moved on from pure mobile money. In fact, in certain instances, mobile money has failed dramatically. In, in the South African market, we've tried to implement mobile money a couple of times, and it just hasn't taken up. And if I can jump in here, why is that? Uh, so in the, the South African market is highly saturated in terms of financial products. You can literally, in fact, the last study probably a couple of years ago that I, I read from the from Mastercard was that the uh, card penetration is sitting about seventy percent. You could literally get a bank account. I actually tested this at some stage over the phone in twenty minutes. You can get a card, a bank account, and a card. You know, in suburban areas and, and metropolitan areas. There's an ATM around the corner or a bank branch around the corner. Clearly on the fringes, it's a bit harder, but at the 70% penetration rates, you know, that's very high. 
and to throw in the other challenge there is when you sort of bring mobile money into the market where you have very similar requirements to open up a bank account. So in, in South Africa, as an example, to have a mobile money account, you have to show similar KYC documentation as you would for opening up a bank account. And it just makes logical sense, in my opinion, at least, to get a bank account. So those barriers are part of the reason why it, it didn't really take off. But to get back to your, your, your point, uh, I think when you look at it more from a digital payments perspective as opposed to just mobile money, it paints a di- totally different picture. You, you know, in certain markets, you're looking at QR code payments, where you use your phone to scan a QR code and, and pay, which really applies in the, in the top end of the market, down to how do we provide mobile point-of-sale terminals for small merchants to accept payments, because it doesn't make financial sense to to put in a traditional point of sale because it's too expensive you don't have the electricity perhaps a smaller mobile pause of sale would would take place and that ecosystem is a wide range and mobile money is just a subset of that and in trying to solve for digital payments you almost have to look at it in a holistic fashion and if you go in looking at it just on a product level it's almost bound to fail what would you say is the next step for africa's fintech industry after mobile money. You know, we're seeing mobile money penetration rates, which are pretty high in East Africa. Of course, Ethiopia is still a virgin market. Nigeria, in many ways, has much room for growth. The Nigerian government has just announced that they need to revise their financial inclusion strategy because they're not going to meet their targets by 2020. And a lot of that is because it's a bank-led mobile money strategy versus a telco-led mobile money strategy. So I'd, I'd just love to hear your thoughts. I mean, where do we go next? So, so this is like a very important, important question and, and one that I've been grappling with for a while. I, I remember being in this and trying to figure it out and say, why, say, for example, why isn't mobile money taken off in Nigeria and it's done very well in, in the East African market. It hasn't taken up in South Africa and, and all that, you know. So this is stuck in that in that mode trying to figure it out. And I decided to take one step back. And the, the reality is if we start if we keep looking at financial inclusion in sort of on a country basis, it's actually really difficult to try and implement. The guys who the model I know are that and this is actually this is the basis for my second book I started looking at Silicon Valley type innovators and how they've been very successful. When I talk about Silicon Valley, I use it as a generic term for uh, global tech giants. So think Facebook, WhatsApp, Google, uh, Alibaba and likes. And I've asked a a simple question of myself. I said, how is it possible that they've managed to be very successful on the continent. And let's use WhatsApp as an example. It's prevalent across the continent, you know, in terms of communication. And I'll, show, I'll talk about some trends in a bit. How is it that WhatsApp has been very successful in creating a pan-African platform that everyone can use? Um, it's almost bypassed the regulatory conversations that need to happen. It, it you know, and there's the, the recent talks of last year on putting mobile payments on WhatsApp. They started trialing it out in in India, and it's actually a very scary thought. If, for example, you could make transactions or payments on WhatsApp across borders or send money, um, that's a totally different game now, and that's a, a 
that just removes the conversation from trying to figure out why mobile money hasn't worked in, in a certain country to, wow, this is a pan-African product that we need to re reconsider its implications in, in Africa. And when you start looking at it from a pan-African player, and this is a conversation I have with the most entrepreneurs and innovators is, your strategy must be pan-African from day one. And, and, and clearly to roll out, say, a mobile money strategy, if you went the approach of let's roll country by country, you're going to hit lots of brick walls. It's going to be a challenge. You're almost going to th- take it one level up to say, how do we have a pan-African strategy that when we roll it out, it covers X percent of, of the continent? And that's a different conversation. And it's not, it's not one that is... Um, uh, not doable because we, we can see the likes of WhatsApp and, and, and Facebook and Google have done this um, despite the fact that we don't have the infrastructure and the, the mobile connectivity and they figured it out and the question we'd be asking is how do we use that model to drive uh, um, the financial industry as an example which is one of the industries that focus on on the African continent. Well, and that's a vast conversation in of itself is scaling is super difficult in sub-Saharan Africa because you're dealing with 54 different markets, incredible diversity, different regulatory systems, different ecosystems, different legal systems. So when you're talking with entrepreneurs, kind of what are the secrets to having a pan-African strategy from the very beginning? The, the secret there is to understand what problem you're trying to solve. Um, and I'll refer again back to the Silicon Valley type innovators. In 2016, Facebook announced that they were going to launch a, um, a, a, I think, internet.org. They're going to provide free internet access across Africa. In fact, at that stage, I had, I had the CEO of um, the satellite provider, Utilsat, uh, on my show talking about this, you know, the, the Facebook had partnered with Utilsat and said, wow, this is great. I had, I had to see on my show talking about how do we, how they're going to provide free internet across the continent. Um, and I thought it was very clever. You know, when you think about it, they were going to launch a satellite to, to do this until I took a step back and, and I asked myself a question and said, put in context, Facebook is a for-profit company. So clearly they're not doing this from an altruistic point of view. Um, the conversation is what's next. You know, so you launch free internet um, uh, coverage across across Africa. That's great. And you take the box and you think about the communications infrastructure and you say, who owns, say, WhatsApp? Facebook owns WhatsApp. So automatically they're able to provide communication infrastructure on the back of free internet. And in one fell swoop, they've literally bypassed all the telco operators on the continent, so the likes of MTN, Vodacom, uh, Tigo—they they actually out of in, in principle out of business because you can provide free communication in the back of free internet, uh, and if you provide the digital payments, like I, I mentioned, um, um, so over WhatsApp, then it's a different game. You move from disrupting the telco industry to disrupting the financial services, and the conversation I actually have with with uh, innovators and. These are the kind of problems we need to be solving. So the starting point is to ask a very, very hard question, which as an example could be, how do I provide free payment services or payment services across 54 countries without having to 
to go to, into every single country to roll out. And that changes the game completely. And by the way, this conversation is not necessarily for every innovator. You've got to look for almost the visionaries in, in the entrepreneurial space to say, I want to tackle this really hard problem. And that's sort of the, you know, the premise of the books I write and the articles I write. How do we solve really hard problems? Because clearly, if, if you look at the financial services space, doing it on a country-by-country basis doesn't stack up. The flip side to this is we actually have a finite time to figure this out. Give you some context here. As you look at the reports, World Bank reports, McKinsey have written reports around this that project that Africa would have the largest working population by 2034. Right. And that's about 40% of the working population globally would be in Africa. And, and when you put that in context, 2034 is not far away. It's probably you know, 12, 15 years time. So in, in principle, we have 15 years time to solve these really hard problems. We don't have an infinite time to solve this. So the innovators who are bold enough to answer these hard questions are the ones we need to support, provide the right infrastructure to, provide the right funding to in order to execute. And that for me is the core of what sort of disrupting Africa is all, all about, finding those innovators, promoting them and giving them the, the tools to execute. Well, and as you mentioned earlier, you know, you've kind of since 2015, you've been talking with innovators, you've been immensely involved kind of with the African Leadership Network, if if I'm not mistaken. Yes. And having spoken to so many innovators, what are the key ingredients to their successful track records in innovation? Yeah, it's a very interesting space, I must admit. And I, I remember when I was about to publish my first book, uh, I literally had to stop writing because I kept uncovering more and more innovators. Uh, I just literally had to stop writing. And uh, I actually do have an online version of, uh, which I, I'll mention later, on tracking innovators. What that gave me was actually some, some interesting themes around innovators and, and their success their success metrics and, and i must admit it's very hard it is really hard for innovators on, on the african uh, continent and i did some research around that and understood why innovation in the technology sense of the word on the african continent is actually quite new so uh, most innovations are on the back of the mobile phone and in most most countries across the continent the mobile phone penetration you know is relatively new it's probably you know 15 plus years old uh, it's a new industry let's put it that way so most of the innovators who are coming out now and and really trying to solve hard problems are what you would term generation one innovators and generation one innovators in any in any industry is going to be hard because it's never been done before. You're trying to solve problems. You're going to encounter challenges. It's just hard. And, you know, I haven't, I haven't done, I can't give anecdotal stats on this, but just from a gut feel from talking to these innovators, for every probably 10 ideas or innovators who start a project, probably three make it through to becoming worthy of investment out of the three probably one would, would take off and, and and those conversions are, are dismal you compare that to say your, the silicon valley counterparts uh once again like i said i'm using that as a generic term but let's use silicon valley in california and you, you do the history uh, 
and look at the generations that have come through. It's almost uh, Silicon Valley from the days of Frederick Thurman, the the, the dean who's, who, who sort of initiated um, HP and the likes. They're probably in the fourth or fifth generation now. They move from, say, the, the likes of HP, Intel, Microsoft, Apple, down to the Facebooks and the likes. They're probably in the fourth to fifth generation where that ecosystem uh, is established, the funding system, ecosystem is well established. They have have uh, uh, channels to foster innovation and the likes. And comparing those two, I think this is from, from an innovator's point of view, to fundamentally understand where they are in that innovation cycle, generation one, it's going to be really hard. But the competition typically every now and then is actually the generation four or five. If you apply the same logic with Asia, China, I think Alibaba, Tencent and, and the likes, they're probably in the generation two or generation three. So they've gone through those exercises of, of, of trying to create those ecosystems. And we need to appreciate that's That's why I sort of talk, tell the innovator, we need to appreciate that this is very hard. And there's almost got to be a... We are the we are the forerunners here, and we're trying to solve these hard questions to make it easier for Generation Two and Generation Three innovators on the African continent. And part of what I, I'm really passionate about is trying to make it easier for these guys, because if we don't promote them, we don't talk about them, it almost feels like they don't exist. Uh, and what we're trying to do is almost open the doors for for these innovators to make life easier for them. And how do we make things easier for the next kind of wave of African entrepreneurs? There's three things. So the first one is we need to promote them. And in fact, in my mind, that's uh, that's a strategy. The strategy for disrupting Africa is hinged on that. The first, we need to promote them. And promoting them is it comes in various forms from making sure there's a right the right narrative is being said about them in the media, giving them the exposure they need, talking about the successes and their failures and and, and the likes. That's that's part of it. Inclusive of that is also making sure they're in the right room. So if it's funding, we need to provide funding for them. In fact, funding is a, is a critical one that, that that bothers me and I've been trying to figure out how to solve it. Right. Is you, you, you see the trend. The trend is almost inevitable across the innovators. And I've done the sort of the research-ish in, in anecdotal ways. So for, for those guys who make it to the top who get the funding, ask them what's the pattern to get there. And the trends are quite similar is they, they start off with their, with their idea they bootstrap it, they get the funding from friends and family, or not even friends and family because that doesn't exist. They've got to dig into their savings to, to execute that. And then the next phase is they run around the, the country or the continent looking for funding. They go to the banks, they go to VCs, which in the VC environment in Africa doesn't ex- is almost non-existent. Mm-hmm. Maybe they get a bit of seed capital, and they get to a point where they've proven the product works, and that remember the 150000 mark that um, I, I was talking about. They get to that point where they, they can show this is a credible business, but then they struggle to get growth capital. And what they end up doing, the ones who are lucky, they go out outside of Africa and they spend 50% of their time trying to fundraise and the other 50% trying to run their business. Uh, and for most of these guys, it's the first time they're doing it. And you, you know, the conversions speak for themselves. Maybe one out, out of three make it through. But it, they're, they're battered and bruised by the time they get there. And I guess the conversation in uh, giving them that exposure is to make sure 
we also make it easy for them to get the, the funding or, or to create that ecosystem. So that's the first piece of giving them the exposure. The second also is then understanding the, the trends and the themes. And it's actually the, the title of my second book. So innovators in their own can't solve all problems. They clearly need, and you mentioned this, Victoria, uh, they need the regulatory environment on board. They need the financial services on board. They need, there's just an ecosystem of people who need to support us, uh, or rather innovators in, in this instance. And creating those themes or identifying those trends that by the time the innovators are in place to participate, we should make it easy. To, and then this is why Rwanda is actually one of my favorite countries because they've made it really, really easy for innovators or ideas to foster in, in the community, to open up a business account today. You know, the ecosystem is just built to support innovators. And I think that model works. Yeah. It, it works quite well. It's, it's thoroughly fascinating from a case study point of view. And, and I'll just interject here that that's why so many companies will go to Rwanda to really test their idea, develop a product market fit. And, Absolutely. and because the market's so small, inevitably, you know, it's, it's almost kind of a testing ground, but you're right that the Rwandan government has just been so forward thinking about creating an enabling environment so that it attracts those kind of first movers. Absolutely. Uh, and that's exactly, you know, the, the second theme, like we need to create, it's not just about the innovators, the technologies, uh, how do we create that environment? And we've proven it. And when I say we as Africans, we've proven this in Rwanda. The question then is, how do we make sure we can replicate this across multiple countries? It wouldn't make sense for someone, say, from Gambia to fly over to Rwanda to register and prove the concept when we can do it in Rwanda, uh, sorry, in, in Gambia, as an example. Right? So we need to actually start to create these environments and have these hard conversations, you know, and, and this is sort of where the, the top level, think of the African Union, think of the AFDB, the, the, the conversations which I, I believe they're, they're trying to foster. And you, all you need to read is the manifesto and the, and the plans, so you can see it's right there, right? And we need to make sure we can create that quickly enough. You know, we don't have, a, like I said, we're going to have the largest working population in about 12, 15 years. But we can't wait till then to create those environments. We've got to create it now. And then the third bit for me really is, and that's where my real passion is, and like I said, the three pillars here. The third one is, how do we find those innovators who are solving the really, really, really hard problems, and we make sure we support them in any way we can? The best example for me of an of innovator entrepreneur with such a vision is um, Fred Swanica of the African Leadership Group. For, for listeners to give you context here, if you don't know of African Leadership Group, they, they've got a, a vision to roll out 25 Ivy League universities across Africa to plug up the brain drain so people don't have to go to Harvard or Stanford or, the, or, or to Australia. We have those universities here, and then we, they, they have a target to churn out 3 million uh, leaders who are high quality, and they, those leaders have a target of X, I think a thousand odd, creating a thousand odd jobs. That vision is just phenomenal. That's a 50 year vision. And if we could find those innovators and just make it easy for them to execute. So, if we give an example with Fred, he's launched two universities, one in Mauritius and one in Rwanda. Um, prior to that, he had the academy, which, which is sort of the, the high school element to that. But it took him 10 years to get there. And I'm saying we don't have 10 years for, for the next Fred Swanica. How do we make it shorter? 
and that for me is really that's a, the third core of of the, the the strategy of what we're trying to do at Disruption Africa is how do we find those those Fred Swanikas, make it easy for them to execute, knowing that, you know, in the next 12 years or 12, 15 years, we have the largest working population. There's probably another population growth in the 2050, and we address very hard, hard questions. I'd love to know, what are a couple companies that really inspire you, that you find to be truly innovative and groundbreaking? Yeah, I'll give you I'll give you three. And I've got, I've got a lot of... of uh, Innovators, I've just thoroughly impressed by. But I'll give you three. I've mentioned Fred in the education space because he does, and he's got he's using technology in a massive way to 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 drive education. But I'll, I'll talk about three. One of them is um, a company called MFS Africa, that founded by a um, like a friend of mine, Dario Kudru, and he's his premise is to provide a platform that allows Africans across the continent to send money from their mobile phones instantly. And he started this business about six years ago. And as of early this year, he's plugged in over 170 million mobile money wallets across the across the continent. 170 million. Put in, in perspective where uh, the, the population is about 1.2 billion in, uh, in Africa, he's probably connected about 15% of, of the, co- the continent. So they can literally remit money from Gambia to Ethiopia, from South Africa to Morocco. You could, you know, in principle, you could do that. And that for me is very, very fascinating that he started from scratch to get to this point. That's one of the innovators I'm fascinated by. Uh, another one uh, is called MicroInsure, uh, based out of Kenya. They, I think head office in Kenya, and they've got a, a group office in, in the UK. And the premise here was, for me was thoroughly fascinating, providing insurance to the bottom end of the pyramid. And I, I don't like that term, but I use it because it's one of those that is uh, prevalent. And the, the, the premise here was saying, on the African continent, it's hard to provide insurance cover, whether it's life, health, whatever type of cover, to most Africans because they can't provide the the typical KYC documentation, KYC know your customer documentation, which typically is we need an ID or passport, we need um, a proof of residence, we need three months bank statements. For most people, they can't even provide three out of three, um, so they exclude it automatically. And what MicroInsure has done to say, hold on a second here, we know most people buy airtime or credits for, for their phones. So they buy it almost religiously every month. So we'll look at your, your historical patterns and say, we see, dear Joe, we see you spend a thousand rand or a thousand quacha, a thousand CDs on, on airtime, and we will provide you with free health insurance in the back of that airtime, almost using that, that um, history as as um, the KYC documentation. And they've rolled out in multiple countries across the continent. I think their last count, if uh, I know, don't quote me on this, but I think it was about 18 countries. I thought that was very fascinating, but we don't talk about it. And the last one actually is a favorite one of mine because it's a truly African product here in South Africa. And, and you put in context, most Africans, including myself, you know, I'm educated, but to be honest, I don't know much about stocks and bonds, you know, like it's just one of those industries that sort of goes away over my head, even though I try to research about it. But most Africans understand cattle and a company called Livestock Wealth have created an asset class on the platform saying, Africans, you can buy 
assets in the form of cattle. You can buy portions of, of cattle. Uh, you can literally log onto the platform. You can view the crawl where the, the cattle is and say, oh, I own part of that. And the reason why that for me is very fascinating is because most Africans, when you're sort of getting married, you know you've got to buy, you know, in most African cultures, there's some form of a dowry payment, either it's cattle or goats or sheep. It doesn't matter the, the concepts that applies that you've got to provide. And having that ability to buy parcels of that in preparation for that is is just African and groundbreaking. And it doesn't matter. You take that concept, you take it to Kenya, people understand. They're like, wow, I understand. I, I can buy a, a parcel of um, of sheep or goats and I can log in and see that. And that concept people understand. Africans typically con- understand. You explain that to the grandma in Limpopo, South Africa. Explain it to her in, in Onicha, Nigeria. They get it. And you can get them to to participate in the stock market, but in a very African way. And those are probably the three, you know, just given we have time constraints here. But there's so many of these innovators thinking outside the box, trying to solve genuine problems for us. That for me, just so exciting to, to get the chance to promote and talk about them. Oh, well, that's a great list. And uh, companies are definitely going to research. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll uh, more than happy to share, share information about them as well. Great. And I'd love to know which books have left an impression on you recently and that you can recommend to our audience. Right now, I'm in the midst of reading a lot of, uh, on um, a Silicon Valley type innovators. And I, I must admit, I'm a huge fan. The, the thought process around uh, the Silicon Valley strategy is just impressive. And I think we will do well as African innovators and entrepreneurs to piggyback off this, some of the strategies. And the two books that I've read in the past few months that I, I can talk thoroughly recommend is Zero to One by Peter Thiel, who is the founder of, co-founder of PayPal. And the reason I actually really like that, the concept is, is, is fascinating. This, uh, and the theory there says, it says most innovators move from an incremental stage. So they move just sort of fixing small problems and trying to solve for minute problems. But the theory of moving from zero to one is there's a problem that didn't exist. So this product exists and you move to one and it's there and it's explosive. So think how Uber has disrupted the transportation industry. Think of how Twitter has disrupted the, the media space. Think about how Google has disrupted the search and, and library space. Now, and and he, the book is thoroughly fascinating. And for me, that is the type of thought process African innovators need to have to answer really hard questions. And the second book is actually The Google Guys, which is a history into into Google. And I, I really like that book because uh, I think it speaks to my inner nerd, you know, where mathematicians and people with statistics and uh, background try to solve a problem. How do you simply provide, how do you simply archive and provide information across the world? And the background, the technology behind that to execute is just fascinating. But on the front end, it's just delivering a very simple interface that anyone can type into and get results in a matter of microseconds. So those are the two books I've read in the past past few months that I can definitely recommend to, to readers. And if you could give one piece of actionable advice to an aspiring entrepreneur in sub-Saharan Africa, what would it be? 
Uh, that it's, I sort of mentioned it loosely in, in the conversation, but the first one is to for, for entrepreneurs to understand they are most likely generation one innovators. This is going to be hard. This is, you know, they, they're charting the pathway for the next generation, uh, and they should almost start to think of it from a legacy point of view. What legacy would I leave for the next innovator uh, to look up to? And that for me is very important because you want the next generation to have genuine role models to look up to. And that's the first advice I would give. And the second is just think big, go for gold. They're very, very hard problems we, we need to solve. And and we are looking for those innovators who are thinking big, pan-African, and, and how do we solve these problems? And to give you some some stats, that which I've done using the, and this is once again my inner nerd coming out, if you use the, the principle of diffusion innovation theory, which Malcolm Gladwell in his book, which is another book I quite like, talks about the tipping point. There's a finite point where we start to see change. And to get to that point, it's probably about 3.5% of Africans very motivated and and thinking about how we can solve our problems. And to get to that 3.5%, when you do the mathematics, you only need about 17 people with very bold ideas. And you put it in perspective to find 17 people delivering those results that's like that's fast in fact by the way that's the title of my, my my third book so you get the sneak preview so how do we find africa's 17 who can really really solve africa's uh, huge problems can you share some details on current projects you're working on with with our audience so I'm very passionate about solving for the African diaspora. So one of the projects I am I'm working on is providing remittances solutions to the African diaspora. It's a very hard one. You know, if the hard question is how, and I think that the rough stats, you look at the United Nations and you uh, look at other reports, is there roughly about 30 million Africans out there uh, in the diaspora. You know, I, I, and I term them the forgot, forgotten generation because once you leave the continent, it's almost like we don't know about you till you come back and then you almost have to start from scratch. Um, you look at other trends that say, you know, the Africa has is, is the most expensive continent to send money to, average about 10%. Uh, in some countries, close to 20% of value remitted. And these are, and these are the formal channels. And ask the question is like, why is that? Why is that the case? And by the way, who's deciding that Africa should be the most expensive continent? Um, so one of the projects I'm working on is actually to solve that, and we've we're focusing on Nigeria. And in the past sort of seven months, we've had about four corridors from Europe into Nigeria, above and beyond just giving them access, real-time access. So you send money, say you're in Germany, you send money to Nigeria, it's real-time. And above and beyond just the ability to send money, we're now starting to open up bank accounts for nationals. So you could be in Germany and you can have a, an account opened in, in, in Germany, it's a Nigerian bank account. So by the time you come back to Nigeria, you have your bank account, you have some credit in there and have a history that it is, is very easy for you to, to move into the, into the mainstream. The end goal then, the hard question we're really trying to answer is how do we um, replace the need for foreign direct investment with remittances? And the, the, the numbers they'll give you is in, but in 2013, the amount of remittances into Africa exceeded the, the, the amount of foreign direct investment. So clearly, this is an asset 
we as Africans can use. And there, there, there are quite a number of postulations around how we could do this through diaspora bonds, through securitization. And the end goal really for me is to say, how do we replace foreign direct investment with, with remittances from our fellow Africans, um, brothers and sisters in the diaspora? Mm, that sounds like a thrilling project. Very exciting. Uh, it keeps me up at night and I thoroughly <laughs> love it. <laughs> and where can our listeners follow you on social media? Uh, so I'm on a major, major um, social media platforms. I'm on LinkedIn, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, an easy search of my name, Namdi Oranya, would get you to my social media platforms. Or you can go to my website, disruptingafrica.com, for, for details around my social media platforms and also the strategies and, and projects we're working on on the website. And, and there's actually a link there that I keep promoting. There's uh, the, the, the website is actually designed in the form of an encyclopedia. Um, and I, I, if you recall, I mentioned in the, in the, uh, during the, the conversation is that I struggled with keeping track of, um, of, of the innovators. So we actually developed the, the website in the form of encyclopedia, very similar to Wikipedia, uh, where we just update all our innovators and you have up-to-date content about each each innovate that we come across on the continent on the website. Oh, wow. That's a fantastic resource. Yeah, yeah. I like it. You know, the, the success of my book, which is quite surprising, is that no one's ever done that before. No one's ever cataloged the innovators uh, in a list. And you ask a question, if, if you're an innovator and you're starting off and you want to look for other innovators across the continent, where do you go to? It almost didn't exist prior to my book. Um, and, and clearly, I, I, you, you mentioned this, that um, technology moves fast. Um, and I just had to create a, 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 an online resource that we could update and people can go to and give objective uh, objective facts. So, you know, not, not on one side, you, I'm too passionate about innovators and I promote them. On the other side, we're not promoting them. It's just objective uh, facts about innovators and what they're achieving. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Namdi. This was a great kind of meandering conversation into Africa's innovation. So thank you. I uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. I appreciate you having me on the show. And uh, thank you for your work on, on promoting African innovators and entrepreneurs. That's all for this episode of Young African Entrepreneur. But we can use your help in evolving this show through your feedback and suggestions by engaging with us on social media at YAE Podcast. You can also visit yaepodcast.com for show notes, resources, and information on today's episode. That's yaepodcast.com. It's your time, your journey, your Africa, young African entrepreneur. <laughs>